would like to speak a word of blessing and encouragement to the fathers, to those in the room, those who may be watching online. Uh, what a gift. What a gift it is when God gives us children to love and to care for and to raise up in the training and the admonition of the Lord, as the Bible would put it. But it's a blessing to have godly fathers. It's a blessing to be a godly father. Uh, and we all feel uh, inadequate, obviously. Men, we all know. It's, it's not an easy task. Uh, but it's a God-given task, and it's glorious, and it's worth it. And we have a good heavenly father who loves us. And so we have the high and the holy honor and privilege of reflecting something of our Heavenly Father to our children in the way that we care for them and nurture and provide and protect and even discipline, even discipline. All of that is a reflection of our good, loving Heavenly Father. And spiritual fathers, spiritual fathers, I talk about this a lot, but I am who I am in a lot of ways, not because of my earthly father, but because of my Heavenly Father and my spiritual fathers. I should be straight with you. Some of the men that God has put in my life, I would credit for having the biggest impact on who I am to date. And so uh, do not think for a moment. Don't discount that. Uh, God calls us men to be a spiritual father in other young men's lives. Amen? And the impact is real. And the, the lack of that in the church is real. When that when that is not happening, it's devastating. And so I want to call us as fathers, as men, to really own that, step into it, love our family, love our wives, serve them well, and to strive by the power of God, the grace of God, and the Holy Spirit of God to walk in our calling. Amen? But also to be a spiritual father, to find young men that have a great need to be cared for and mentored and discipled and loved as well. But I also just want to say, praise God for the men in this room. Praise God for the fathers. This is a day that is set aside like Mother's Day to celebrate the mothers and Father's Day to celebrate the fathers. And I pray that today you are celebrated well and encouraged and refreshed and blessed. And I just want to pray a special prayer right now for the men, for the men of God. Will you join with me in prayer? Father, thank you that you are the Father of lights, that you are the giver of every good gift. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us as Father, recognizing that before ever, anything was ever created, before anything that exists was made, you existed as a Father, a Father loving his Son perfectly. And so, Lord, to understand you is to understand you best as Father. So thank you, God, that uh, you have called us to be fathers, both physically and spiritually. Uh, and I pray, God, that you would bless us as we seek to honor you and to live godly lives and to walk biblically and to reflect you, God and to live pleasing lives that bless others as you have blessed us. So I pray for the fathers in the room, those who couldn't make it today, and those watching online, that you just pour out a special blessing of encouragement upon them. Refresh them, Lord. Remind them of your great love with which you have loved them in Christ. Your great love for their family, your commitment to them, 
your commitment to our families. And we praise you that you are the Heavenly Father, the perfect Father. And we look to you in all things and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That really is pretty amazing when you consider that. We tend to think of God as creator, the maker and sustainer of all things. There are a lot of ways in which we think of God, but how would we understand God before any of those things were? If, if God were simply creator and sustainer, then who was He, what was He when there was no creation? God was Father. He's always been for eternity. It's amazing, isn't it? All right. Well, with that, let us turn our attention to the book of James. The book of James. Now, the last couple of weeks, I went pretty heavy with uh, introductory materials, and so I'm not really going to go there today, but if you haven't been present for the last couple sermons, I would encourage you to go back and, and uh, check that out, and you'll get a lot more of this information. But I will just remind us that James is the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus had brothers. He had four brothers and, and at least two sisters, and they were obviously half-brothers. They shared the same mother but a different father. And so uh, James and Jude, we both believe to be, both letters in the New Testament, uh, believed to be half-brothers of Jesus. He was a well-known, prominent member in the church in Jerusalem. He was the leader of the church. And uh, he died for his faith, we believe. Last week, I shared some things about James, talked about his nickname. Uh, there's a lot of things how he died. And I will typically say tradition says, or history says, and that's an important distinction to make because those are things that have been handed down throughout history from generation to generation. They're reliable, historical things. But we can't be sure of them. They're not in the Bible. So there is a difference between what is in the Bible that we know that we know. That is fact. Amen. That is God-given, inspired truth, inerrant. But then there are things that are historical, that are handed down, that are tradition. And we you know, can put a, a you know, they're, they're reliable, interesting things to consider. But I want to make sure we understand that when I say tradition says or history says, I'm not putting it on the same line as what the Word of God says. My professor was here last week, and he, he let me have it after service for not making that distinction clearly enough. And so, one of my professors, I should say. And so, anyways, um, so let it be known. Now, the, the book of James, it's a, a short little book, five chapters, extremely practical, extremely practical. And it's such a such an interesting little book. It was one of the first books that I read as a new believer that really got a hold of me. I got so excited with the book of James, and I, I commit the first chapter to memory. And uh, that, you know, I think my goal was to memorize the whole book. And so I made it through the first chapter, which was not an easy thing to do. Uh, but it's a, it's a, it is a book worthy of memorizing, and it is, uh, it'll change your life. And the, the theme of the book is to be what? doers of the word. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in the text before us. As we conclude chapter one, we'll be looking especially at verses, what did I say? Verses uh, 19 through 27. But uh, before we do that, I just want to drop back and review a little bit from last week. So we've already talked about trials 
trials God brings into our lives, trials that God allows us to experience for our own good, because it is through those trials that we are shaped and molded. Remember that? Amen? So we, we want to let those trials have their, their effect on us. We want to allow them to produce what God intends them to produce. We don't want to try to pray ourselves out of our trials necessarily. We don't want to try to escape the trials necessarily, um, though we do. And I probably will always pray myself out from underneath my trials, but recognizing that uh, at the end of the day, nothing's wasted with God and difficulties have a purpose and God uses them. So if we could get to the place where we can thank God for difficulties and hardships and we can pray that God would be glorified in our lives through the difficulties and hardships and that God would use those things to mold us and shape us into the men and women of God that He intends us to be. That's like the highest plane of maturity. That is a, and God calls us to that. And James intends for us to walk in that. And he calls the Christians to, to have that perspective, to have the mature perspective when it comes to trials. He talked about wisdom, seeking God's wisdom in the midst of these things. Praise God, He doesn't leave us to our own devices. When we're going through hardships, difficulties, and trials, we can come to Him for wisdom, and He gives it to us generously. He doesn't withhold. He's a good, loving Father who gives good gifts to His children, and one of the promises that belongs to us is that God will give us heavenly wisdom when we need it, and that we shouldn't doubt Him. We, when we come to God and we ask and then we doubt, we're doubting His goodness. Uh, we're, we're doubting His faithfulness. Uh, when we come and we express great trust, that really communicates something about what we believe about our God. And so we're told, don't doubt, don't lack faith, but come believing that we will receive, and we will receive great wisdom. But then, from that point on, he begins to turn and talk a little bit about the exaltation and humiliation. I don't know if I did that right. But God, in bringing trials into our lives, will use those trials at times to humble us. And this is very counterintuitive, but sometimes the greatest blessing for us is being brought low. Being brought low. And so he says, let the lowly brother glory or boast in his exaltation. When God lifts us up, it is right to rejoice in that and to celebrate that. Amen? And to give God the glory for it because he's worthy. But when we are brought low, it is also right to rejoice and to praise God and to celebrate God's goodness and faithfulness because sometimes we need that more than anything. And James has in mind here particularly those who are trusting in themselves, people who are self-made, self-reliant, totally independent from God. And James says, look, that man and all of his pursuits are going to fade away. There's going to be nothing left to show for it when he passes from this life to the next. And so it's a gift when God humbles us and reminds us of what is most important. God gives and God takes away and he deserves to be praised in both of those circumstances. And like I've said last week, when God takes away from us, we see more clearly just how sufficient he is. How when I have just had my life stripped down to a, to a 
to the core, I came to realize, not just intellectually, but experientially, that God's enough, that God is faithful, that God is good. When God adds to our lives, the distractions come in, and we, we waver in our loyalty and our affection, and we get, uh, we get lured away. Remember we talked about that? We get lured away, we get drawn away by the shiny things, the trinkets that this world has to offer. And so it's a blessing when God allows us to be humbled. Because the reality is, do you ever say God is good? Do you ever find yourself saying that? God is good. We probably all say that, and we probably say it quite a bit. When do we say God is good? Well, when good things happen. When good things happen. Um, And He's worthy to be praised when good things happen. Every good and perfect gift is from Him. But what about when bad things happen? Do we still stop and think God is good? Is God still worthy and faithful of our uh, or worthy worthy of our praise and faithful uh, when the difficult things come? Yes, He is. Yes, He is. And so, having this ability, this ability to to be steadfast in that God is good, God is faithful always in the good times and in the bad times no matter what, knowing that God's using it. And then James promised that to those who persevere, those who remain steadfast under trial, one day we will receive our reward. We don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap. Amen? That's a promise to hold on to. That is a promise to hold on to. Then we started talking about temptations. There is a distinction to be made between trials and temptations. Trials God brings into our lives, trials God uses to to reveal who we really are, what's really going on in there. But temptations are something altogether different. Temptations are something that Satan brings into our lives because he's trying to take us down, take us out. And Satan will appeal to our flesh, our own sinful desires and passions, but God never does that. And James made that very clear. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God. Because God is perfectly holy. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. He is never tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. Amen? And just to drive that point home, James goes on from there and says, He is, he is the Father of lights. I mean, He is pure and holy in a way that we will never know fully. And every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from Him, and He never changes. There is no variation. There is no, no shifting shadows with Him. And so don't ever think for a moment that God is somehow out to get you, or God is angry and He's going to smash you, or you know anything. God, as I said last week, has proven His love for us by sending His Son. And that's what James said in verse 18. He said, of God's own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. That is to say, we've been born again. We've been made new through the gospel, through faith in Jesus Christ. And that was God's doing. He is a good Father who gives good gifts. He has demonstrated and proven His love. He will never tempt us to sin, and He will always use difficulties and hardships to work good things in our life, and nothing is wasted with Him. Amen? Nothing is wasted with Him. And so that brings us to where we are now. We're going to look at verse 19 and following. 
And uh, I would say this is kind of a mixed mash. Now remember I said that James isn't super linear. He does talk about a number of different things, but he kind of comes back to it, back to it. He'll move on to new content and then come back around. And so we're, kinda, we're still dealing with a biblical response to trials and sinful conduct. What do we do with that in our lives? How do we, how do we view these things? How do we navigate these things? And so James says this in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Man, what a verse. So this is to the brothers and the sisters, to the church. God is our Father. We belong to Him. Jesus is our Savior. And realizing that, that we've been brought forth, that we've been made new, that we have new hearts, that we have the Holy Spirit, we are given these very practical instructions. And we are told that we are to be those who live lives that are slow to anger, that are quick to hear. I love the saying, I'm sure we've probably all heard it a thousand times, there's a reason why God gave us two ears and one mouth. Amen? Because we need to listen twice as much as we speak. Amen? That's right. Oh man, I hadn't heard that in a long time. Our brother's visiting with us today. Come on! I miss that, man. I miss that. We got to be quick to listen, quick to listen. Now, I would say, again, this is in the context of of trials. What happens when we go through trials? Yeah, what's what's going on inside typically comes out. And like I said, God reveals some things to us. And we go through hard times, and then we explode. Okay, God, God just took us to school. He showed us something. I remember as a very new believer, God radically changed me, and I was like, I was so excited, and I think I wasn't, I, the, the, the reality bomb hadn't hit me yet, that, that there was still some stuff in there that God was going to have to reveal and, and, and show me. And something happened, and I lost my cool, and I flipped out. And I'd always had had an anger issue, and oh man, I realized that beast is still in there. And I remember just thinking, thank you, God, for allowing me to, to see this and realize that this is still something that, that needs to be addressed and that, God, you intend to work out in me. But God showed me what was really going on in there through that trial. And so when we hit trials, oftentimes we complain, we gripe, we uh, blame shift, uh, we flesh out, we explode. And James says, don't do that. Do not let that be your response when you experience trials of various kinds because that does not reflect God. That does not reflect God's goodness, God's righteous character. And it's not our place. It's not our place. The Bible does say that God is a God of vengeance and wrath and that it's God's place to administer that wrath. Amen? Vengeance is God's. He will repay. It's not our place. So how do we reflect God's goodness, God's character? We are to be those who are slow to anger, slow to wrath. Because when we do the opposite, 
we're told, that doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Now, let me say this. It is okay to get angry. The Bible says that. There is a time to be angry about things that we see that, that blaspheme God, that dishonor God. Uh, we can be angry with our own sin. I said our own sin. I know we love to get angry at other people's sin, but we need to get angry at our own sin. Um, but the Bible says that we can be angry but not sin. Sometimes we get angry, and it might be a righteous anger, and then we flesh out, and we think that that was justifiable. We think that was God-glorifying. And let me tell you, as a new believer, oh man, I, that was me. I would, I would rise up with just righteous indignation and then just lay down my fury and wrath and think that I was just, you know handling God's business, you know, this is God's work, you know, and uh, I got humbled, man, I did, I come to realize, no, you're just in the flesh, man, and you are, that is all bad, I remember doing that one time in a, um, it's kind of a board meeting, a bunch of leaders in a church in Tennessee, and something happened, and I got upset, and I, I thought, nobody else will speak up, I'm the one, I'm the man, I'll speak up, and I spoke up. And I did so much damage, and my pastor called me later. He's like, man, you have got to learn to be, what was the word that he used? I can't, I can't even remember now, but anyways, yes. That's a lesson that you have to learn, okay? Slow to anger, all right? Quick to listen. Quick to listen. I think that's an important thing, too. The Bible is clear on. We need to when it comes to dealing with conflict and navigating different things, we need to hear all, get all the information, hear all the sides. Proverbs says something about that, right? When you, when you uh, hear one side of a story and then you respond, but you haven't yet heard the other. So James says, look, reflect God's goodness and His kindness and His character and trials. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then he says in verse 21, therefore... Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So this is kind of a general term here. This is, I've, heard it, I've heard it said this is the junk drawer of sins, if you will. It kind of is all-encompassing. We have to put away. We have to put away sinful choices and living, the things that used to define us, things that used to be our identity, things that that's who we were outside of Christ now that we are a new creation, new creature, new creation in Christ Jesus, we're not identified by those things anymore. Therefore, it follows that we would be different, that we would be new, that we would be like Jesus. So we have to put off all those things. Now, I will say that there are, there are sins that we love to hate and we love to make a big deal about and bash those people and those sins, but there are so many other sins that really, those sins aren't really affecting our church. It's the sins of the saints within the church that we need to take seriously for one thing, and it's sins like pride, pride, and this pride is something that we rarely see or are aware that we have it, but selfishness, Pride, greed, lust, envy, uh, explosive anger, 
All of those kinds of things, we've got to put that off because that does not reflect God's goodness, does it? That does not reflect His character. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 4, you have not so learned Christ. Okay, that's not our Savior. That's not how He is. And so being those who have received the implanted Word, we have received the, God, the implanted Word. What I like about that, that little phrase it's not some external thing. It's not some external uh, list of rules and regulations that we have to live by. God puts His Word in our hearts. God gives us His Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ and writes His law on our hearts. And He makes His Word the delight of our souls. His Word is not a burden to us. It's a blessing to us. We know that it is from a loving Heavenly Father who knows what's best for us. And so we are to receive that word, the implanted word that changes us, that saves us from the inside out. And that is what is to inform the way that we live our lives. So again, it's this New Testament concept of putting off, putting on. We have to receive God's goodness and God's kindness, God's love and forgiveness, God's power, so that from that place we can begin to live out God's will and God's best. And that is what James calls these early Christians to do. That's exactly what he calls them to do. Because now he's going to tell them, you need to be a doer of the Word. A doer. So let's, let's look at this together. Verse 22. He says, But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There it is. I said that's the theme verse of this book. We have to be doers of the Word. Now, we love to hear the Word. We love to hear the Word, most, most of us, most of the time. We gather around, we gather in Bible studies, we listen, to, we listen to the Bible, we listen to sermons. We love to hear the Word. We love to be challenged. We love to go deep into the Word. But are we doers of the Word? Um, I heard a... And I heard a pastor he gave an illustration that he heard from another pastor who gave this illustration. And so now I'm going to give this illustration, and I'm not going to do it justice, but I think it puts it in perspective for us. You know, I imagine you, you, you have children, you give them a command. Clean your room, okay? I'm going to go to work, I'm going to come home, and when I come home I expect to see your, your room cleaned. Right? Simple enough. You go to work, you come home. The room is not clean. But the child says, you know what? I just love how you said you need to clean your room. It just struck me. It was deep. It was profound. I was challenged by it such that I had my friends come over. We sat in my room in a circle and just pondered the significance and the implications of what it means to clean one's room and all the various ways it works itself out in our lives. One of our friends brought over their guitar, wrote a song about it. We sang the chorus, clean your room, all you saints, clean your room. And uh, it was incredible. Wow. And then you look at the room and say, yeah, but there's just one problem. You didn't clean your room. Your room is a mess. You're grounded. Now clean your room. But that's what we do as Christians, isn't it? 
That's exactly what we do. It's laughable. We can joke about it, but that's what we do. We love the Word. We love to get into the Greek and get into the history and listen to all these different theologians and pastors, and we love to talk about these things. And we'll often say, I just need to get in the Word more. I don't know how many times I've heard that phrase. I don't know how many times I've probably said that. I know what I need to do. I just need to be in my Word more. We need to do the Word more. That's, that's what it boils down to. We need to do the Word more. If we don't do the Word, there's not going to be any change. The power is in the doing. But praise God, we've, you know, God didn't just say, okay, do my Word and that's it. He changed us. He gave us a new heart, new affections, new desires. He gave us His Holy Spirit. He gave us His Word His Word is living, it's powerful, it it speaks to us. He's given us everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the power of His grace and His Spirit. But we still got to do it. You know, when Joshua led Israel in to conquer the land, God said, "The, the victory is yours. The battle is won. That land belongs to you. But you've got to go in and you've got to dispossess the inhabitants. You've got to go fight the fight. But the battle belongs to the Lord. It was already a done deal. Well, the same is true for us. We have all that we need, but we still have a fight that we've got to fight. There's a battle that is joined, and we have to purpose in our hearts that we're going to do what God has said. Amen? James says in verse 23, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So, here we're told that the word is like a mirror. It's like a mirror. We look into a mirror. What do we do at home? We, we look in a mirror and we see there are some things that need to be fixed. Maybe you need to shave. Maybe you need to comb your hair. Maybe you need, any number of things. But that's what the mirror serves that purpose for us. Now, it's silly to say, wow, okay, yeah, and then walk away. No, you need to do something about that. That's, this is very basic, very simple stuff. You look in the mirror, you see the issue, you take care of it. The same is true with God's Word. Now, let me say this. When it comes to God's law, when it comes to God's law, a lot of people approach it like this. They look in the mirror, they see the mirror, they see there are some issues there, they take the mirror off the wall and they start trying to fix the issues. We don't use the mirror. The mirror just shows us. So God's law, we first off recognize that through God's law, we are separated from God. We are in big trouble that we're accountable for our sin. That is the number one purpose of God's law. God's law shows us, it is a reflection to us, that God is perfectly holy and pure and blameless, and we are not when we see our sinful condition in the light of His holy law. So what we can't then do is say, okay, now I'm going to keep that law. That's what I'm going to do. There's the issue. I just need to do everything that the law says. That is wrong. That's like taking the mirror off the wall and trying to comb your hair with it, okay, or wash your face. 
<clears throat> the law shows us that we can't keep the law and that we're in big, big trouble. And so then comes the perfect law of liberty. That's, a, I think, a significant little phrase because liberty never came through the law. The law is good, the law is holy, but all the law could really do is show us that we're in big trouble and that we don't measure up to it. But the law of liberty is the gospel. It is done. The law says do, the gospel says done. And so we've got to start there. We see in the mirror of God's law that we are in trouble and that we need help. Then we see and hear the good news of the gospel. It's not who we are, but who He is. It's not what we can do, but what He has done. Jesus Christ did what we couldn't do for ourselves. He saved us. He lived the life that we failed to live a million times over. He kept God's law perfectly. The only person who has ever or will ever do that. The, the man, Christ Jesus, the God-man, perfectly obeyed the law. And now He says to us, believe. Call upon my name. Take my yoke. It's light. It's easy. It's not a burden. It's not the burden of the law. It's grace. It's grace. It's forgiveness. It's my spirit. That is the perfect law of liberty. And when you've received that, when you have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and been made free, now we can get to work. Amen? It's, it's, it's from the place of... God's love and God's kindness that we can begin to work. Not so that we can get God's. That'll never work. It'll never do. You'll never get God's love by doing more things, doing more and doing better. I, I saw that, I saw some time back a sermon, uh, some church somewhere, and, uh, and up on the, on the stage, the words were, uh, do more and do better. And so that's like mine and Dan's mantra now. Do more and do better. That's what we tell each other. So that's, that's terrible news. Do more and do better. And so we are to recognize our neediness and we are to repent of our sins and turn to God in faith and receive God's grace. And then we got to get busy. we got to start walking in the Word and allowing the Word to change us. And that is what God uses. God uses His Word. I talked earlier about the men of God that God has used in my life, but it was the Word of God. That was what, that's what washed my, my mind and my heart. That's what changed me from the inside out. It is God's living Word, His truth, the implanted Word. But we've got to be about living out the Word. So I just want to challenge us. It's not rocket science. And it's nothing profound. It's simply, are we doing the things that we know we need to do? Are we mindful that that's our objective, is to read the Bible so that we can learn of God, so that we can behold His glory and His revealed truth, so that we can understand something of His character and His nature and His love for us, but also so that we can understand how can we live our lives in a way that is pleasing to God. And God gives us His Word, He gives us His truth so that we can do just that. And James says, are you doing it? Are you doing it? Because the blessing is in doing. Isn't that what he says there in verse 25? He will be blessed in His doing. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 13. 
If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Happy. That's what it means. Happy. That's what the word blessed means. There is joy. There is happiness. There is blessing in doing God's word. Being a doer of it. And so it starts by believing. Believing in Jesus Christ. Believing in the gospel. Receiving a new heart. And then getting after it. Progressive sanctification. Growing in godliness, growing in Christ-likeness. Is that, is that one of the chief aims in our life? What, what is it that is the goal and the focus of your life? What are you living for? What is it that is your chief pursuit? Where are your affections? Where are your loyalties ultimately? Is it your aim to grow in Christ-likeness? Is it your aim to please your Heavenly Father? Is it your aim to be a doer of the Word and not just a hearer only? We're called to be doers. Amen? Amen. And then verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So now he's going to talk about speech. Talking about speech. Now, let me just say, you know, I'm not sure what the Greek word here for religious is, and it's translated, obviously, religious. Religion is not a bad word. I just want to clear that up. Uh, I know that we have this saying, uh, I'm not into religion, I'm into relationship. And I get what people mean by that, and that's, that's not a, a bad thing, okay? I, I get it, and I appreciate that sentiment. But, uh, you know, we are, this is a religion. We, Christ is our, is our King. He is our Lord. We are religious people, and I don't, we don't need to be ashamed of that, okay? And it's not a bad word, so don't be afraid to say that. We stand in a long line of faithful brothers and sisters throughout church history, and, uh, and we are part of the Christian religion, the Christian faith. And so, but dead religion Religion that is just all externals. I'm just doing a bunch of outward things, but my heart is cold and calloused and dead inside. That is, that is bad. That's all bad. And that's what Jesus was dealing with in his day there with the leaders. They were doing all of these things outwardly. So you can be a doer of the word outwardly, but inwardly be dead. And Jesus had a warning for those people. He said... On that day, I'm going to say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Remember they said, we did all of these things in your name? And he said, depart from me? So it can't just be doing things, all right? First and foremost, it's God wants your heart. God wants your love. He wants your, your loyalty. You have to trust him savingly. You have to be his. He has to be your father, your lord, your king. But then beyond that, we have a responsibility hourly to, to uh, live religious lives, if you, if you will. I don't know how, how else to say it. It's the language that James uses here. And so what does that look like? Well, he says it has a lot to do with the way we talk, for one thing. If you say you're a religious person, you say that you're a follower of Jesus well, then watch your mouth because we can do a lot of da damage with this, don't we? Don't we do a lot of damage with this? Don't we, we say one thing, we can talk the, the religious talk, we can talk the spiritual talk, 
And then all of a sudden, watch out. Oh, man, I remember years ago at work, I was a brand new believer, and I was uh, outside on a forklift, and I was doing something, and I kept trying to get, I couldn't, and I, like, I lost it, and I started cussing. I was out there by myself, so I thought, and, um, and I mean, I just let it fly, like 15 words. Well, it was really just one word 15 times, and... Um, <laughs> A little later, this guy comes walking up to me, and he was like, he said, didn't I, didn't I hear you out this morning, like, singing? It was a Hank Williams song. I saw the light. Sound country. And he was like, Weren't, didn't I hear you singing? I saw the light. And I said, yeah. He was like, well, what was that? And I was like, dang. My bad. I lost it, you know. Uh, and so, can't do that. We can't do that, Okay. Less, lesson learned. And so, uh, gossip, slander, complaining, murmuring, uh, just all of that. That is so bad. And that is something that we can all fall into so very easily. And so, we can't bless God, praise God, and then turn right around with our tongues and just undo everything. And that's, that's what it boils down to. We can undo everything with our speech. Uh, some of the things that I see and hear people say and do, it's like that just in so many people's minds and hearts, it undoes all of the other things that you hear that are good things when we just turn around and tear it apart with our, with our speech, with our language. And so we have to realize we have to keep that in check. A doer of the word is one who watches their own mouth and honors God with their speech. And that goes with coarse humor, vulgar uh, type stuff. I mean, any, anything and everything that does not please God, that doesn't honor God. I have, I have failed at this throughout the years, but I think there's a very good rule of thumb, and that is, is there... What you are about to say, is that something that if the person was eavesdropping on you right now without you knowing it, they would be blessed to hear that? Or would it just tear them, to, tear them apart, right? That's a great way of thinking about it. If what you're getting ready to say would not absolutely bless somebody if they were in the next room listening, don't say it. Don't say it. And so uh, that, I mean, you really take that into consideration. That's, that's, a heavy, that's a heavy thing to think. Um, and so we gotta, we got to watch that. And then last, verse 27, James says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James says what pure religion is not, it's not letting our mouths run wild. Pure religion is this, it is to care for orphans and widows. Now, let me say this. That is true. That is good. That is right. And we should do those things. In this particular time, they didn't have what we have afforded to us in that culture. If you were widowed or orphaned, you were next to dead. Uh, there, there, you were in... That was about as bad as it could, could, could be. And so... The church really took seriously the role of caring for widows 
and caring for orphans and so many other things that the, the church would do. Uh, in that day and age, it was, they, they called it ex- exposing your, your baby. If, if a baby was born and they decided they didn't want the baby, they would just throw it out. Leave it, leave it out in the wilderness to die, to come to the elements or to be killed by wild animals or whatever. You know what Christians did? They would go looking in for these babies and they would find them and save them and raise them. That was one of the ministries of the church. There were dead bodies everywhere, people dying in horrible, gruesome ways. You know what the Christians did? They would find these bodies and bury, bury them. The mercy of Christians throughout the centuries. Uh, hospitals, education, so many things that Christians are the, the architects behind because they are recipients of God's mercy. And James says, as one who has received God's mercy, you have an obligation to give it to those who are destitute, who are hurting, who are without. And so the church has always cared for the down and out, for the lowly and the hurting. The church is supposed to care for its own, those who are in the church who are hurting and down and out. And two very real ways in which we can do this is by caring for widows and caring for orphans. And there are other ways even beyond that. There are a number of other people, types of folks who are really hurting and down and out. But the point is, as Christians, we're supposed to be doing that kind of stuff. We're supposed to take our, our attention off of ourselves just a little bit and put it on caring for others. That's what true religion looks like. It's not just in speech, but it's in action. It's not just hearing God's Word, it's doing God's Word. It is seeing needs and meeting needs, caring for the needs of others. That is what pure and undefiled religion is, being a doer of the Word and caring for those who are less fortunate than ourselves meeting the needs of others. I could spend so much more time talking about that. Maybe we'll re- we probably will revisit that next time. But uh, just one last thing, and he says, also keeping ourselves unstained from the world. Being unstained from the world, being different, being set apart, being holy, being like God. That's pure religion. Pure religion is walking in the light as He is in the light. It is looking like our Savior. It is being salt. It is being light. It is being love. It is reflecting God's goodness, God's character, God's love to a lost and dying world. And we're not going to save the world by being like the world. That's the, for so many people, the church, they see the church as the church needs to be more like the world. The church needs to be a place where people... Look, I want people to come in here and be comfortable. And I hear people tell me that a lot. They come in, they feel very welcomed, they feel very comfortable, and I love that. And it should be that way. We don't want people to come in and feel like this is a place where they're not welcomed and it's unloving, and we obviously don't want that. But I don't want this to be a place where people can come in and feel very comfortable in their sin. I don't want to be comfortable in my sin. I don't want you to be comfortable in your sin. Because that is bad. That is not good. That is unloving. God doesn't want us to be comfortable with our sin. He calls it out. He gives us His Word. He convicts us of our sin. And so we need to be cleansed. We need to confess and repent and turn. And we need to be different. The world needs to see a pure church. The world knows that it's 
the world knows that the world doesn't have the answers and that nothing satisfies and it's looking for something is it not obviously and so the only way we're going to serve this world well is by giving this world a church that is pure that is unstained that does not look like the world it's otherworldly amen we're otherworldly we're from another kingdom we serve a different king and so we're to be different and James says that's where it's at that's pure and undefiled religion guarding your tongue and your testimony, caring for those people who can't care for themselves, and remaining pure in the midst of this very crooked and dark world, being lights. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that you don't just call us to do things, to do more and do better, but that you give us all that we need that you give us, you make us new, Father, and you give us the power and the strength and the grace and the wisdom. And like I said last week, and then you reward us for it. That is just baffling. But praise you, Father. Praise you. We give you glory this day. We give you honor. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. And I pray for us all here today that we could do these things. God, help us to be doers of the word not just hearers. Help us to be changed from the inside out and to walk in your ways. Help us to guard our tongues and help us, Lord, to care for those who are in greater need than than we are. So many around the world who just don't have what we have. We have an embarrassment of riches. And the crazy thing is that we don't think so. We don't think that we're rich, but we are. We're filthy rich compared to much of the world. And so help us, Lord, to take the good things that you've given us and to use them for your glory and for your kingdom and for those who are hurting and needing, needy. So we praise you, Lord. I pray for everybody here today. I pray that you would lift up their countenance, lift up their hearts, bless them, Lord. Fill them with your peace and your love and your joy. Fill them with your spirit. Refresh them, renew them, O oh God. And bless them, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up your countenance and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. See you guys on Wednesday night going through the book of 1 Samuel.